our church family for the Lord's Supper, and also we are looking at qualities of great Christian relationships. I believe that in order to be right vertically with God, we must be right with one another horizontally as well. In fact, the Father demands and insists upon it, and we'll make that very clear in this text in Matthew chapter 18. I will say to you real quickly, we'll do evangelism training this afternoon at 2.30, and uh, Wednesday night in our WOW service, A.B. Sawyer and John Walker will deliver a report on their trip to Benin. They'll take the entire service for that, and I wanted to let you know that. Uh, as we are as we have started school, I uh, recall a story about a teacher who had to send home an unusually large number of bad grades to, for students. And she expected when they got home that they would blame the teacher for their bad grades. And so she typed a real clear note at the bottom of every report card that included a bad grade. She said this, I will not, uh, well, I, if you will not believe everything you hear that takes place at school, I will not believe everything your children says takes place at home. <laughs> a very wise teacher. As we look at the Lord Jesus, we find Jesus was a very wise teacher. Without the use of modern technology or communication apparatus, he gathered large crowds and they heard him, and we still memorize and quote his words today. We've translated his words into more than 3,000 languages, more so than any other. We've distributed it more than any other teacher. In fact, one time Jesus was teaching and the crowd pressed upon him that he had to get into a boat and go into a sea and taught them from the boat so they wouldn't press upon him. The crowd was so large. And so that's what kind of teacher Jesus was. And in Matthew 18, Jesus uses nine different images to communicate. And that's one thing a good teacher will do. A good teacher will illustrate and communicate his message with illustrations. In fact, uh, one of the old education principles that many of you are aware of, especially those of you in uh, preaching and teaching and education, is that you teach students something new by connecting it to something old. You take note of what they already know and communicate from that knowledge base, and that's precisely what Jesus did. He, he teaches them about the dependence on God for salvation in verses 1 through 5. Look, look here at the first image. They asked, who's the greatest? And he called a child, and he said in verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, they were familiar with children. Now, this passage has oftentimes been, been uh, misinterpreted, especially in relationship to children as an image. That children are, you are to be as uh, sweet and as kind as a child. Those who say such things have never had children. Instead, <laughs> what we find here is that Jesus makes a different point. He says, you've got to be humble. You've got to change internally and become humble. What Jesus is teaching here is, is that your only hope for the kingdom of God, of being saved and missing condemnation eternally, is to become as dependent on God as children are on parents. Otherwise, there's no hope, and that's the first image. But there's a second image that we find in verses 6 to 7. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone 
were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If you offend a child and discourage a child from following Christ, or if you offend a new convert and discourage a new convert from following Christ, it would be better to take a millstone like you see in the picture and tie it around your neck and throw yourself to the bottom of the sea. In other words, the judgment awaiting offenders in eternity is greater than drowning yourself. It's pretty serious. It's pretty serious to cause college students to doubt their faith. It is a serious thing to set a poor example in front of children. There's a third image. He goes on in verse 8, and he even gets, I think, a little more severe and painful. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And so instead of getting in the way of children or new converts and following Christ, instead of discouraging others from a full-throated, leather-lung, complete commitment to Jesus Christ, it would be better to engage in amputation. Amputation is better than the judgment that awaits unbelievers who stand in the way of people following Christ. There's a fourth image, and that is in verse 9 and 10. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, children or new converts. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. And Jewish rabbis, like many communicators, would use certain devices when communicating. One of those happened to be overstatement, obvious overstatement. My grandmother used to do this. She would complain either about her phone bill or the heat in Houston, Texas. And when talking about her phone bill, she said, I have to get off the phone or it will be higher than the national debt. The last time she said that was 2004. What would she say today? (laughs) And then when she complained about the heat in Houston, which can get up into the 90s with nearly 100% humidity, She would say, it is as hot as blue blazes. When I was a boy, the first time I heard that, I looked for blue blazes. I had no idea what they were. But it really wasn't as hot as a blue blaze. That's much hotter. But she was overstating the case about her phone bill and the heat in Houston in order to make a point. And that's what rabbis did. Jesus really doesn't want you to mutilate yourself or amputate arms or feet. What Jesus wants people to do is do anything necessary to get unbelief and doubt and antagonism against the gospel out of your heart and life that you may not hinder people from coming to Christ. If you don't, eternity will be worse than amputation and mutilation, which is the fourth image. But there's a fifth image, and that is that of a shepherd, verse 11 through 14. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost and to illustrate what do you think. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not lead the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? If he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more 
over the sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so the shepherd has an awful lot of resources invested in just one sheep. And he goes after the sheep until he finds it. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is on a rescue mission seeking to save that which is lost in this world. And that's another image that he uses. And so we do not allow these kinds of things to get in our way of seeking to reach those who are lost. Now what Jesus will make clear soon after this is that one of the challenges and difficulties he has in mind happens to be the problem of unforgiveness. And so whatever we've got to do to surgically remove or to rip from our hearts and souls a lack of forgiveness, that's precisely what we do. That we may not hinder others from coming to Christ or having a full commitment to Him. He goes on in verses 15 to 20. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. But if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be like to you a heathen and a tax collector. This, this is what we do. When there's a problem in the fellowship, in the family, or other places, we talk about it one-on-one in private. If that doesn't get results and there's not reconciliation and humility, then we bring a couple of others to establish what is said. If not that, Jesus escalates it, makes it more public to the church. And then if you do not listen to the church, the person is shunned, is what the text says. Now, he gives great comfort here in the text by saying, when you do this, in my spirit, in my name, I'm present with you. We oftentimes look at this as a, uh, what's, what's to follow here in verses 18 through 20, as a promise for prayer. And I, I think that's true. But it has more particular application to what many of us call carefrontation. Look with me in verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When you do these things in Jesus' name by the word, this has already been determined in heaven that it's to take place, and heaven is with you. And then he goes on and says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, It will be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. When you have to go through the process of dealing with a struggle in a relationship, and you do it in the name of Christ with His Spirit, sweetness, and His standard, and His standard alone, Jesus promises if just two or three of you are there for my sake, in my spirit, in my manner of acting, I will be in the midst of you. Hey, I know speakers and musicians who won't show up unless there's a crowd of a thousand. And Jesus said, I just need two or three. And so Jesus is making a firm, very promising and hopeful statement that as you seek to reconcile, I am there in the midst of the attempt to reconcile. He goes on. There's more images. Uh, Peter thinks of a question here. He's heard about offenses that might tempt someone to bitterness and unforgiveness. And so he says in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now the rabbis would answer in that day three times. Three times was rather generous. Well, Peter thinks of more. He doubles that and adds one. He says up to seven times. So Peter is quite generous here compared to the other rabbis. The other rabbis said three. 
He says, well, let me double that and add one more for the perfect number seven. Like God, God does things, perfect works and sevens. And so uh, Peter really indicates an awful lot of generosity in this text. Let's go so far as to forgive someone an offense seven times. They can repeat it that many times and they can meet our forgiveness. Lord, is that how often we shall do it? Jesus said to him in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Again, he's a rabbi. He's overstating the case. He did the simple math here, 490 times. Jesus does not mean the 491st infraction, forget forgiveness and cut it off. Not that at all. Jesus is stating and overstating the case as a good teacher to say, your forgiveness then is to be unbounded when someone offends you. Someone may have gotten in the way of you following Christ. Someone may discourage you from following Christ. Someone may have set a bad example or a poor example in front of you. Forgive abundantly. Forgive overwhelmingly. Forgive intensely. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Have an unlimited source of forgiveness. Have abundant forgiveness is what he wants us to have. And then he goes on to tell a story and uses another image here in the text of debt. He says, there was this one man who owed a creditor. What he says are 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was 6,000 days of wages. And this man owed 10,000. The average wage in the United States is $170 a day. You do the math rather quickly. You have a fellow here that owes $10 billion in today's terms. And he comes to the creditor and says, I cannot pay it. Please forgive me. I'll make terms. And the man has compassion on him. And he does not set up a payment plan. Instead, what he does is that he forgives the entire debt. Now, I must admit to you that if someone owed me $10 billion, I would struggle with that. I'd at least want $1 billion. I think I could do with that. You could too, could you? Well, this man that was forgiven the $10 billion debt has someone who owes him. And he owes him, in verse 28, a hundred denarii, a hundred days of wages. He finds someone who owes him $17,000 in today's terms. Now, he's been forgiven $10 billion, but he has someone who owes him $17,000, and the man pleads with him to forgive him or to give him some time to come up with a payment plan, and the man has no compassion on him. Instead, he throws him into a debtor's prison. Well, the original creditor gets word of that and it infuriates him because this hypocrite has been forgiven $10 billion and cannot forgive someone $17,000. He finds him and look what happens. He confronts him in verse 32. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? This is intense. Verse 34. And his master was angry and delivered him 
to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So the $10 billion debt came back into play and now this man owed him $10 billion because he had not had compassion on someone who owed him a much smaller debt. Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. So the final image here is that of torturers. Torturers were those who, by, as the word indicates, would torture those in prison as a part of their punishment. Jesus is a master teacher, and Jesus pulls out nine images in one message to communicate that he values forgiveness between human sinners. We can build an abundant reservoir of forgiveness if we will use our imagination. Well, what am I to imagine? Well, first, imagine influence. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 5. Imagine your influence. I have, um, I have been a public person because I went on, since I was 19, because I went on a church staff when I was 19 years old. I know what you're saying. Who in their right mind would call him when he was 19? And worse, I was not called to be a pastor. I was called to be something complex. My pastoral ministry is very complex, but I was called to be a minister of music and youth. And the only music training I had was two hours from my roommate. <laughs> but I could keep four, four time and three, four time. I ignored the six, eight. I did the two, two. And I ignored everything else. And so anything in the hymn book that had 4-4 four, four, or 3-4, we would sing. And it satisfied folks if it was loud and quick and up-tempo. So that's what we did. And then I was a minister of youth along with that. That was a popular combination back in the 1980s. But 19 years old. And I had to learn, but I began to discover some things about my influence. And it broke my heart. Soon after I went on staff at this church, I came across a quote from the English clergyman and poet John Donne. And this is not a perfect application, but he said this, No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main, he said, if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is less. Any man's death diminishes me. Because I'm involved in mankind, I therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And I think he's entirely correct. We are a part of one another. We are not individual islands. We are a body and one part of the body cannot suffer without another part of the body suffering. One part of the body cannot sin the sin of unforgiveness and not affect and poison all the others. And so it, it occurred to me that my influence is far greater than I ever imagined. And I was still single. Then I got married and had children. And every day... 
the weight of my influence weighs down on my shoulder and I find myself frequently through the day crying out, Dear God, I can't do it on my own. I don't have enough. I I don't have enough strength. I, I don't have enough affection. I don't have enough love to set a good example to interact with every person with kindness and grace. And there are many in the day and there are many in your life as well. We must understand our influence is great. And and beloved, whenever we have forgiveness, it is like a joyful sound that reverberates through a valley. But whenever we send the sin of unforgiveness, we infect others. It is as contagious, it is as contagious as the common cold and worse. If you'll remember that, I think you will go a long ways to finding some urgency to get past unforgiveness and bitterness and rush quickly to forgiveness. But there's a second thing to imagine, and that is imagine threats. John Wesley met James Oglethorpe, and Wesley had been preaching on forgiveness and forgiving others. And Oglethorpe met him after the service near Savannah and said, Sir, I never forgive. And Wesley replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. And he was right. God places a barrier between him and those who will not forgive. And that barrier is the barrier of forgiveness. In order to restore fellowship and a walk with God, we have to extend forgiveness just like God does. And there is no way to take off the rough edges from it. In fact, the person who's not willing to forgive and does not long to give forgiveness to others, despite the struggle and the difficulty of it, is not prepared for God's grace because God will not receive hypocrisy. He'll receive repentance from hypocrisy. He will receive humility in the face of hypocrisy. Oh, yes. But the stubborn insistence on one's uh, uh, one's unforgiveness is something God will not receive. Imagine threats. Now, Jesus is very clear here. A millstone around the neck, better than what waits in eternity for the one who will not forgive. Amputation, mutilation, and then Jesus says in verse 35, My heavenly Father also will torture each of you if from his heart he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Again, there's no way to take the ragged edge off of this. There's no way to smooth this out and smooth this over. We're only saved by the grace of God. Let me make that clear. Repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ, but the one who's not willing to forgive is not ready to repent or trust Christ as Savior. The Christian who is not willing to forgive is someone who is not ready to restore a relationship with God because that person is very willing, on one hand, to have their $10 billion debt to God forgiven, but won't forgive something much smaller. That appears strange from the earth. It sure does appear strange from heaven. Imagine the threats that are are here. But then there's a third thing to imagine, and that is imagine reconciliation. Warring parties coming together. Now, there are several models that people use in dealing with disagreement and conflict and and difficulties like that in relationships. One model is the model of the cowboy. 
When two people disagree, one will pull out a six-shooter and just start blowing someone away with verbal bullets. And it's like one woman said, she said, well, I just blow up and get over it. One man said, yes, but, you know, you're like a shotgun. Look at the damage you leave behind. Some are like cowboys. Then some are like turtles. They see conflict and they duck back into their shell and pretend that it doesn't exist. The problem is, is that they take the conflict with them and eventually they just blow up after many things compile. They gunny sack things and they pull things out and blast others and we wonder, well, what's that all about? Well, they gunny sack things and it's built up. A third, unfortunately, is the image of Brutus. Do you remember Brutus and Popeye? He enjoyed beating the stew out of Popeye and manhandling olive oil. Now what those two fellas, why those two fellas had any interest in her, I do not know, but <laughs> they battled over her frequently and constantly. That's kind of like the caveman. You, the old image of the caveman is he's dragging his woman by his hair. That never made sense to me. She can walk. It's a lot easier for her to get up on her feet and walk. I don't understand that. But Brutus would become physically violent. And I want to say to you, it is never, ever right to lay your hands in aggression upon a woman, nor a man. We only lay our hands on one another with tenderness and kindness. We never physically injure one another. That exists far more than what you realize. There are three images that are rather current and popular. Jesus provides a different model. In verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, you contain it. You do not gossip. You know what gossip is? Gossip is usually entirely true. But gossip means you are telling people things that are none of their business. You're spreading it beyond those that are involved. Slander is when you do that, but you say something untrue about someone. Just because it's true doesn't mean you have to tell everyone it's sinful to do so. It's gossip. What you do is you go to that person alone privately and speak with them. You don't try to rally a crowd. You don't try to rally a group. You don't get political and begin to put pressure on someone. It may very well be that you don't understand what happened. It could be the person was having a bad day. And Jesus says here, go and tell him between you alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. And I have to say to you, most of the time that's what happens. So the model Jesus uses here is, let's talk about it privately and informally first. And then, if you can't reconcile, you bring a couple others with you and you clarify it and they adjudicate the case. They mediate. Well, if they determine that you're still right and the other is wrong and the other person won't listen, then verse 17, tell the church. And if the church speaks to them and they won't listen, then you shun until they repent. Now, Jesus' whole point here is, however, reconciliation. Bring about reconciliation. And this is what we intend to do. I will say to you that most of the time, verse 15 takes complete care of it. That's oftentimes what verse 15 does. And I want us to care enough about our relationships to engage in verse 15 and the other verses if that becomes necessary. David Augsburger, many years ago, wrote a book entitled Caring Enough to Confront. He said the word caring is a positive word. Confront is a negative word, but it's necessary. 
And he urged readers to go ahead and deal one-on-one with difficulties and disagreements because when you don't, it hinders the relationship. And a person may hinder his relationship with God without that kind of confrontation. He said, instead, your motive happens to be great love. You want to be closer to that person. You want one another to have access to each other and each other's strength. But when there's a disagreement, it's hard to do that. And then you want that person and yourself to be able to walk with God. You want forgiveness to flow abundantly as water does in the river. That's what you want. And so he urged readers to care enough about the relationship to care front another. And that's really what Jesus is talking about here. He wants us to have that enough. Now, if you let disagreements go on, and if you let them be longstanding, and you never say anything about them in gentleness and tenderness with the Spirit of Christ, you will find the relationship will cool. We Christians don't do that. We value human relationships. We care. Because if there is unforgiveness, if there's bitterness, if there are difficulties there, then we set a bad example for the world. And then verse 6, 7, 8, and 9 become operative. We may hinder others. And so Jesus promises, I'll be present when you use that model, found in verse 15 and on. He will not be present with the cowboy who blows people away with verbal weapons. He will not be present with the turtle who insists on suffering alone. He will not be present with that model or with the model of Brutus, certainly. I want you to imagine a fourth thing. Imagine grace. Imagine God's grace. Garfield, everyone's favorite or least favorite cat, depending, um, in a comic strip in the first uh, frame, Imagine to himself, you know, all I want out of this life is what I deserve. And in the next frame, he says, wait a minute, wait, wait. I want something better than that. And he was entirely correct. I do not want what I deserve. I want something much better than that. And there's a Savior who gives it. And he wants to. That's the whole point of the parable from verse 21 to verse 25. We have 10 billion sins, or might as well, that we have launched wickedly in hostility against heaven. Perhaps in ignorance. That's no excuse. There's a Bible. Sodom had no Bible, but it had fire and brimstone. We have a Bible. And we've launched 10 billion sins against God, and yet that God gives us a cross and the death of his son. Let let me make clear to you. I can assure you that whatever forgiveness you must extend to others, it is far less than the forgiveness God is willing to extend to you and me. And whatever forgiveness you extend to others will cost you less than it costs God to forgive us. It, It costs God the death of his son to forgive us. He executed his son at the cross in our place in a loving judicial act that the penalty may be paid and the debt to the the court of heaven may be satisfied. Let me ask you, what does your forgiveness to others cost you? I mean, really, come on. 
What do you have to give to forgive someone? Are you having to give up anything? There's really nothing that we, I mean, all we do is just forgive. We don't have to sacrifice children. We don't have to sacrifice money. We really hardly any time at all. Maybe some pride, but let's slay that dragon quickly. Right? And yet the God who looks upon us is the kind of God who undergoes the gigantic undertaking of crucifying His only Son in our place and wiping away 10 billion sins and canceling and and making our past as if it never existed. That's why the Bible uses the image of new birth to talk about salvation. Every one of my children, when they were born, even though they were born under different circumstances, none of them had a past. They only had a future. And God is promising that to you as well in the new birth in Jesus Christ. God is willing to wipe away and to eliminate all 10 billion offenses you've launched up against Him and give you nothing but a future that is filled with the favor and the acceptance and the riches and the kindness that He's giving His own Son. Oh, I wish I were more eloquent. I I wish I was more capable. I'll have to trust the Holy Spirit to penetrate your heart with the good news of Christ. But this is the God who looks upon you and He's not asking you to do anything. He's not willing to do Himself to you now if you'll simply repent and place faith in His Son. Glory to His name. So come before Him in need. You've got 10 billion sins. It might as well be that many. In fact, I'll tell you, every second outside of Jesus Christ is a sin. Do the math. Start with your birthday. And I think you'll come to the conclusion there's a whole lot that God has got to forgive us. But come by trust. You don't have to do any works. Jesus Christ did the work. And He did the work at the cross. And there He bled and there He died in your place. The work's been done. The price has been paid. What must I do to be saved? Absolutely nothing. It's been done. Jesus Christ has done it. And now if you'll repudiate your life outside of Jesus Christ and decide in your heart to turn with your whole heart to Jesus Christ and trust Him alone, God will cancel instantaneously and for all eternity every sin, even the ones yet to be committed. He can do that because He's God. A young Spanish man by the name of Paco had a disagreement with his father and it ruptured their fellowship. And Paco was gone for about a year. His father grieved. His father searched for Paco all over the city of Madrid and never found him. And finally, he resorted to putting an ad in a Madrid newspaper. And the ad read something like this. Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon, at noon this Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. At noon on Saturday, his father was just a little late, and when he arrived, there were 800 young men by the name of Paco standing in front of the newspaper office. Your heart longs to be connected with God, and He wants you to come. 
God doesn't enjoy the estrangement any more than you do. In fact, He dislikes it more than you do. And it's probably far more urgent than you realize. But on your heart right now is a desire to be forgiven by God. You know it's not right to be away from Him. You know it's not right to be estranged. And what I want to assure you is that the moment you're cleansed and God cancels your debt by faith in Jesus Christ and repentance, then you will have divine resources to forgive others. And God will give you strength to make your relationships better. And Father, that's our prayer this morning. We want to ask that you'll do that very thing by beginning with our walk with you. And I pray for friends today that they would do the necessary soul work in this time to be made right with you and one another. Especially before we observe the Lord's, the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. Please give grace. Dear God, we're so weak. Sometimes we're so hurt. And we really need you. Give us a sense of urgency and strength and faith now to make things right with you and one another. And we're going to sing a song. And as we sing,